Hello and Happy New Year. Happy 2024. Welcome to Dateline New Haven on WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio. This is Paul Bass inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make our community tick. Well, this is the right way to start out the year because we have uh, someone, a return guest in the studio today who's been making every year tick. We'll be generating some very interesting headlines this year. So let's get a, let's get a sneak peek. Joshua Elliott, state rep, 88 state rep district. Welcome back to State uh, Dateline New Haven. Happy 2024, Josh. If only every intro were as good as that, Paul. <laughs> I don't write them out, so you know. <laughs> Wait, for just a quick precise here, um, Josh, really, we've been following his career closely, and I'll tell you why. Josh was very active in the Bernie Sanders 2016 presidential campaign. That kind of upended what a lot of us thought, a lot of us older people thought was possible in politics in our lifetimes. Came back, and the Bernie people said, we got to make a difference locally. Josh took on a very established, experienced Democrat and won a state rep seat and quickly became one of the leading progressive voices in Hartford. And it continues. And you're now, what, your uh, fifth term? Fourth term. Fourth term. Mm-hmm. How's, that, how's that going? Oh, I love the work so much. You like being a state because you also run the health food store time of season. Mm-hmm. And you can do both? Can do both. We have great staff at the store, great staff at the Capitol. Nothing gets done with one person. It's so. kind of interesting because you know you're push, you're very much on the progressive side. Mm-hmm. Not that every issue you have to be locked up left or right, mm-hmm. but you're also coming there with the perspective of someone every day has to think about inventory, payroll. You know the the perspective of the business owners who are often the people kind of arguing against what you want to do with minimum wage or budget issues in Hartford. I'm, correct? I'm pretty uniquely situated. I would agree no, with that's that. That's kind of good. That's kind of good. Helps you make a better decision. What do you think of Fetterman? And what do you think of way Fetterman is saying? Yeah, I used the word progressive when I ran, and I have a lot of those positions Bernie Sanders had, but, you know, I do believe in the working across the line and that some things are common sense that aren't left versus right. Either. Well, I the, I agree with We're them. We're talking about the U.S. Senator from Pennsylvania. Right, right. yeah. Well, I mean, well, I, I agree with the fact that we don't have, as legislators, power to determine who our colleagues are and when we're in that building and we're trying to pass laws there is as much benefit of building relationships and reaching compromise with the party that you're working against as is your own party. And that is because the minority party controls the clock a lot of the times. And so if, if you aren't working well with the people that you disagree with, you are significantly less likely to get anything done, let alone home runs. You're far less likely to get base hits and what I've seen now in the seven years that I've been there, not a long time, is that the home runs are very, very rare. And even the base hits are difficult to get. And if you aren't willing to make incremental progress, and I know we're going to be talking about this a little bit later, but I absolutely am there on board with the idea of incremental progress. Just keep on moving that ball forward. And it seems like Chris Murphy, our U.S. center, seems to navigate that well. He he does his positioning so people could see he's standing uh, for a certain set of issues as constituents want, and he he rolls the sleeves up more than anyone with Republicans. He's a Democrat, and with Chris, I think you have to to try to hammer out whether it's gun control or border legislation. He's now working on trying to 
to get that work done, that you can stick to your principles and govern and compromise right. without it being a dirty word. Right. I think that... But that's the, not just what Fetterman's about. Fetterman says some of my positions like natural gas or uh, uh, Israel are not what are in the progressive tick-off list. And he says, you know, he did use a different language when he was in the heat of the last campaign. But if you go back to his career before mm-hmm. that, he was always this like, I'm my own man type thing. Yeah. yeah. I think you can be a strong and proud progressive and not <laughs> be in lockstep with anything, uh, with every single issue that, that is imaginable. Um, I, I agree with them. And I, I think that there's, I think we even, even seen evolution with AOC, for example. Oh, definitely. And she's very serious. I mean, she's one of my models. She's very serious about governing and she's very strong about standing for a set of issues and explaining, although I can't sit through those long Instagrams. They seem a little solipsistic to me, but, but she really is very clear about explaining where she stands and why she's taking a certain vote to be effective. I think that when you first get in and you don't have relationships with people, it's very easy to limit yourself to just speaking to the public and speaking on the soapbox. And then over the course of time, as you're working on issues and you begin to develop granular relationships with people throughout the legislative process, and you recognize that you're going to disagree about one thing today, but my God, if that person can be with you on an issue tomorrow, they might be the best ally that you have. And a lot of the work starts boiling down to what are you doing to preserve as many relationships as possible? You know, we're human. I don't think you're going to be getting along with every single person in the legislature or in the process. You know, there's 151 state reps, there's 36 senators. But I think that a way that I have changed my perspective is that and I, I learned this in law school, so this shouldn't have been new to me, but it, it was still a practice <laughs> of you go tough on the issue and you go easy on the person. And it's just even more important in this situation because there are potentially hundreds, if not thousands of issues that we could be working on year over year. And I'm situated in a place right now where I can be really uh, instrumental in, in passing things. And it only happens when you have those strong ties. Well, let's talk about some specifics then, Josh. We talked about how we're going to talk about state issues first. You're going back for another session in legislature. It's a short session this year, right? Right. You go fewer months when they they want more months to campaign. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) But this isn't the end of the world. You don't need to be up there forever. Mm -hmm. And uh, then we'll talk about the national picture too and the local picture. So you've been a promoter. You have certain bills that you come back every year that you're pushing, that you build support for, and then they eventually pass Mm -hmm. and uh, to some form. One of that was the legalization of recreational use of marijuana, Mm -hmm. cannabis, excuse me. And that um, first it was for medical uses and then we it was full. So how's that rollout gone? I think it depends on who you ask. One of my frustrations was the fact that it took us so long to get cannabis out the door. On the other hand, you could make an argument that because we waited so long and we were able to see what states like Massachusetts, Colorado, California did with their regulatory environment that we were able to learn from their mistakes. I don't think there was ever going to be such a thing as a perfect rollout. I know my representative, a representative here from New Haven, Juan Candelaria, was, uh, he essentially wrote the bill. He did an excellent job and listened to all parties. And one thing that was really important to me was expungement of records. Another thing that was important was ensuring that there was home grow in there. Uh, and then ensuring well, that there was... Tell me what that means. That's shorthand for it's not just some big national company that comes in the way we really are seeing in New Haven, like on Long Morph. That comes in to make the profit, but that, or are you talking, are you talking about, about home grow? I mean, home. I'm just oh, talking, oh, you're talking about, about growing like your own. House. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And then, and then the last bit was just having a really strong equity program to ensure that equity applicants. Now that has not been 
Right. Successful. And I think that for a lot of people, that's the most frustrating. But I will say that we knew when we were talking about passing this bill that that was going to be one of the hardest parts. And, and is that because of access for capital for people? Like if someone were in the life and you wanted to like have them now benefit from it, you were looking for people whose lives were destroyed yeah. by drug war. It's not always so easy to pivot to like commercial banking. Well, and, it's access to capital, but then even down the line, if you want to get bought out, you as an individual person have that choice and people get bought out. And we knew that this would happen down the line so that what this program would do is it would help some people out the gate and, you know, the goal is to what can we do to help people who have been disproportionately affected by the war on drugs be able to build wealth off of off of uh, the legalization of cannabis. And there's no there's no easy answer. And we did the best that we could. And we're still trying so to ensure was, that they're so is it accurate to say that Josh feels like you've been pleased with the rollout in terms of expungements of records and allowing for homegrown. You're not you don't think you're as where you want to be the state with uh the equity part of making opportunities for people of color who yeah and there's no blame here mm -hmm. uh, again these were conversations that we were having as we were passing this bill that we were aware that th there was a limited amount that we could do to combat you know this is a uh it's a capitalist country and if people are, are again want to sell out and they sell out to a big company so what that is they the can. issue here is that was when they were not giving licenses Get, walk me through this what's not working i I think that there's some people that feel like more licenses should, licenses should be given out. There's some people that feel that the people that are uh, have that you know fifty one percent stake are uh, not really there in maybe like a managerial role or they're just in sort of like face only. Let's do the shorthand. Let's explain that to people. It's saying if there's a person who's local and of color, we had that situation in New Haven, mm -hmm. and they can't get financing as easily. They partner with some national financer. Right. So then people say, are you a front? So the benefit is still going against the national cannabis company or national lender where you're not really running the company. Right. But then they come back and say, how are we going to play if we can't? So what, tell me about that. Because that, that, I remember that took a few turns for a woman here in New Haven to get her license. Yeah. And I, I think she was ultimately successful. Yeah. I think we're talking about Keeper is my guess. Yeah. yeah. And uh, she was really involved with the passing of the bill as well. And, and so... She was able to to navigate that 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 system. Not everybody can. Not everybody is is well connected and, and can move the same way. But we still see like when we see who's making the money in New Haven, it is not the people affected by the drug war. Right. So right. you're just saying there's nothing we could do that because we have a capitalist system. You can't just. Uh, how do you how do you fix it? Could be like New Hampshire with the liquor stores that government run. Although that's problematic too. Government run, you're saying? <laughs> I mean, sure you could do that. I don't, I don't think there's a, a, a drive for that. I mean, Virginia, Virginia owns all their liquor stores. Yeah, New Hampshire too. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, um, is it New Hampshire too? I'm not sure. At least it used to be. Yeah. So tell me what's going to happen next. Uh, are there specific ways you're looking to fine tune that? Are you just letting the process work out? Because you know, even when um the woman who ran the equity council, woman mm -hmm. of color used to be down here. She's up in uh, Andrea in, in Hartford now she quit so what was mm -hmm. that all about she felt they weren't really getting the support they need right that I'm not sure I, what I will say I think broad corner. more broadly speaking about this issue is I uh, you know talking about a, a way with which you maybe uh, aren't entirely aligned with with maybe the left but I, I, I don't know with this issue I am surprised by the number of people that want such strong regulatory hold over the market no i agree from the with government. you i don't, I don't, I don't understand I don't it <laughs> regulation i think we needed for like 
Well, I don't think that we should have private companies that get government granted monopolies, and then we try to regulate right. it. Regulated capture. I, don't, I don't know so why we're UI, doing so that. with UI, right? With the electric companies, I just think those should be municipally owned. So that's a little but bit different. Regulation I, is a I, problem. I agree with that too. Regulation of private industry is a problem when there's regulated capture. Well, I would say let everybody grow and sell as long as yeah. there's a standard. That's all. There should be a standard in place. There should be a regulatory body making sure that people are getting, you know, safe drugs. But I don't think that we should be saying there can be eight, 16, 24 licenses because my feeling is it's a market. If there's You're saying let it be I'm with you on that. Don't if have there's, government If there's too much weed, yeah. then the market will correct and people will fail and that's okay. It's not our job to pick the winners and losers, which is what I think right, that we do. Right. But that I mean that ship has very much sailed and I think that to make the argument to get this legal, I think you needed to uh, quell the fears that there would be some it kept on people kept on saying like the wild west of California. It's like oh, who cares if it's a wild west? So there will be an initial burst some businesses will fail and then there will be an equilibrium like any other market. Uh, and we are just, we're very hesitant and we're very cautious in terms of allowing any sort of glut to the market. But what is a, what is a oh, glut? Uh, you know, by the way, just philosophically, <laughs> I don't think it's left right thing. I think uh, over-regulation, I don't think there should be zoning for 99% of things we zone for. Sure. We should let the market work unless you're taking advantage of people. But often regulation sets up wealthy mm -hmm. people to make more money and limit yeah. the other opportunities. But you mm -hmm. said you lost that one to pass it. Oh, yeah. So what do you do now about that? Do you still try to like chip away at it to allow mm -hmm. everyone? Could, do you still feel that anyone grow and sell But as long as the standard? But you think there's nothing you really can do with that? No, I mean, that was a, a major argument from some other growers that I knew that wanted there to be a market for like micro growers. You know, you have large breweries, but then you also have smaller breweries. And, mm -hmm. and what are we doing to get people into the industry to, to start learning how to build a business and, and start smaller? We don't really have any sort of carve out for them. And I think that we should have. I think that we should. Uh, I, I'm not going to say that that's in the pipeline. I don't think it is in the pipeline. It's something that I, I believe in. Uh, I, I don't think that we're there right now. So is it fair to say that you, you've gone two out of three in your biggest concerns? You felt it was inevi yeah. you're inevitable that by trying to pick winners and losers and limiting the market, we're going to like do sort of anti-capitalism capitalism. Sure. But I, that down I think the my, road, not yet, you would be in favor of having a, a channel for micro yeah, growers. Like absolutely. Absolutely. I, I mean, the, the big fight was just getting it legal. <laughs> Right. So I would say uh, one out of one. I, I mean, uh, mm -hmm. if if I had gotten none of those smaller wins, it, it wouldn't have been the worst thing in the world because all those smaller wins I could have kept on fighting for and gotten. So the fact that there were other additional wins within that bill was great. But just the fact that it became legal, it took so long. So yeah. very happy about that. So you've moved on to psilocybin, mm -hmm. and that's also been, I think, Oregon legalized. That's right. I think you can recreationally, right? But they're rethinking. No, they're not rethinking that. They're rethinking fentanyl, right? Well, I, I mean, that was a, I want to say it was a ballot initiative, and and it, and I think they decriminalized everything. I don't think it's Different legalized. Okay. Uh, I could be wrong, but that's that's my understanding, and and I think that what we are seeing from Oregon is that uh, when this happened, there were no res resources that were dumped into uh, mental health services and housing services and employment services. And I think that without having a strong uh, support network for people that may have uh, addiction issues, that this can't work uh, in a vacuum. Well, I really believe strongly in decriminalizing every drug, 
I also really strongly believe that we need to be putting way more resources into helping people that have substance abuse uh, abuse issues um, that that stem from from drug use. So why decriminalize and not legalize? Um, because I I mean the, it's it's the first step of just making sure that we're not sending people to prison. I think that it, it's fine to say that maybe we don't want people selling you know having a, a ton of heroin and, and selling it uh and and so still having like some structure uh um, what about government sales government regulated so there'll always be a black market on the side right? i think there'll always be a black market yeah i think that the idea of government selling drugs is is probably pretty toxic to people uh it is something that i would not be against and it's for precisely that reason, I don't think anyone's going to be buying drugs from the government who aren't uh, maybe already have uh, issues with substance abuse disorders. Um, I, I, what I see as the holy grail is having uh, sites around Connecticut that uh, address housing, that address mental health services, and that address having uh, clean drugs and, and clean paraphernalia. So you mean clean injection sites? Clean injection sites, but having it be a little bit of everything. I think the need is great, and I think that harm reduction is key, and I think for a long time we have been using our prisons as repositories for people with substance abuse issues and trauma and, and uh, any other host of uh, mental health issues. Am I right, Josh, that we were conflating their opioids and psilocybin? Aren't they very different kind of animals very different. for a legislature? They're very different. So yeah, you, if I remember correctly, correct me, you, you did succeed in helping get passed and you sponsored a bill to allow for medical trials of well, psilocybin. So right? psilocybin as uh, and, and LSD and MDMA, these are drugs that the FDA is actively looking at for um, mental health reasons that we have found that they work for depression, that they work for uh, PTSD, for PTSD, for migraines. Uh, there's a number of things that they that they can work for. Now, they're not a catch all and not everything and everybody is well served by use of these drugs. MDMA, I know, has been in phase three trials for a while, and, and psilocybin has been in phase two trials. And even Yale, right here down the road, is working on uh, psilocybin. So I we thought that was because of your bill that they're allowed to do that. No, you didn't no get any, they you didn't were, get anything passed. They were doing it anyway. What this was going to do is also, this was going to okay. So the bill I created was a task force. First of all, that was a couple of years ago, and this oh. was to look at creating a framework for medical use in Connecticut if and when the time came that this drug came off of the, the federal list of substances. And so this was just more preparatory than anything else. For, the, for the three drugs. For no, This was just for psilocybin. Okay. And, and so what the task force ultimately decided was that we're so far away from that point uh, that they were going to punt and researchers that they had talked with were not ready and willing to be political yet because if you know a little bit about the history of mushrooms you know that in the 70s there was this massive backlash politically culturally uh and universally across the u.s because professors were essentially having their students ingest and there was no oversight so researchers are being a lot more diligent with their approach right now and so they feel very strongly that we're heading in the right direction all the signs are pointing in the right direction and they are still saying, let us still make sure that we have some better, longer-term data so that when we are ready to get political, we are really, really backed by information. So, where are you on that? Did, you, did your bill pass to do the task force? So, 
the task force passed, and that was a couple of years ago. They punted on the issue, brought the bill up again this year. But instead of a task force, what I or this this year, sorry, is last year now. Uh, the, it was a pure decriminalization of psilocybin, so it was not a medical issue. It was decrim, and it passed the house, and it was a very short debate. It was very limited debate, and uh, it never got through the Senate because uh, you know someone who is in a position of uh, of power in the state of Connecticut does not believe that we should be decriminalizing psilocybin. So that person's still in that position. Let's just say uh, it's going to be another three years before <laughs> this bill is possible. But my feeling is keep talking about it, keep pushing it. But a lot of this work depends on having very specific people in positions, uh, leadership of both chambers, leadership of the relevant committee, and certainly a governor. Uh, everybody needs to be on board the issue for something to pass. So are you going to reintroduce it this year? I'll be reintroducing it every single year as long as I'm there. <laughs> okay, we're talking to Josh Elliott, state rep from 88th District, Hamden, here on Dateline New Haven. So another issue you've been pushing year to year is aid in dying. What have you managed to get across finish lines and what are you looking to do this year? This issue has come before us for decades and it historically, certainly before I got elected, had never made it through a committee. For the very first time, it made it through the public health committee a couple years ago, maybe two, three years ago. Uh, I've sort of been chasing the issue, so I was very intentional about getting onto the public health committee. But then there are uh, concerns that this changes, the bill changes the definition of murder. And for that reason, then it also has to go through the Judiciary Committee. And the Judiciary Committee is now where it gets hung up. Uh, I've now chased this issue down to the Judiciary Committee, of which uh, I'm, I'm now on. Uh, it, again, this is an issue of granular personalities. There are some groups generally that are against this. It's uh, the church, certainly. Uh, and then there are also... What would the bill do? So the bill would be um, exceptionally narrow in scope. It would be the most narrow in scope bill of this kind were we to pass it. It would be uh, six months left to live. You have to get signed off from multiple doctors, two doctors and one mental health physician. Uh, and then you need to go for frequent check-ins. I think it's like once a month. And uh, you have there's a, uh, I want to say, one-year residency requirement. So there are so many ways with which we limit who would actually be able to use this bill to the point, I believe, that if we were to actually implement the way that we're talking about it, almost nobody would use it. But the important thing for me is get this bill on the books and then see how it's working. And if it's not and people aren't using it, then make those corrections to actually allow people to use it. So mm -hmm. that is what we've been discussing. So it hasn't made it out of the Judiciary Committee. We've heard it a number of times. We have these long, exhausting, emotional hearings. And... Uh, yeah, it's it's still not it's still not going yet. I mean, so here are the arguments. One here, one argument is um, that people should have some agency and some right. If they're not, if they're really miserable right. and have physical conditions, they don't want to live. Right. Who's the state to tell you you can't? Then the opponents, if I understand the arguments correctly, say sometimes people are not able to make judgments in their own best interest if they're clouded by medication or mental health that they can't have another those aren't mistakes those aren't the arguments that you really hear at What's the, the capital the ca so first is there's the sanctity of life right. and that there is um there's nobility in suffering and that really comes from the wow. church every father or pastor that comes before us tells us about how suffering should be in a sense, cherished, which I 
disagree with. Mm -hmm. And then there are the, the disability uh, rights folks and their perspective is that um, something like aid and dying could be used by doctors to convince people who have limited function in, uh, in any sort of facet that their life is, is uh, in some way less worthy of living. So they're worried that this reinforces society's prejudice against what's a valuable life and whether disabilities make you Correct. less human. Correct. And what do you uh, think about that? Uh, empathetically, I understand and accept that argument. I also think that it leaves a lot of people that uh, w want this out in the coals. And I also don't see still, after having ar heard argument after argument, how uh, the six months left to live diagnosis, uh, how that wouldn't essentially um, eliminate the fears that, that people uh, on that side of the argument have. Mm -hmm. So I, I understand what they're saying. It just doesn't seem... Uh, guided toward what we are actually talking about and then doctors have been mostly neutral i think for a long time doctors have been pretty hesitant to support this and and against the idea of aid and dying because of the hippocratic oath and basically doing everything in your power to keep a patient alive and this seems on its face to fly in the face of that but i think that there is beginning to be more nuanced conversation about uh, what being alive and what being mortal means and what their obligations yeah. and responsibilities truly are. So we're seeing a, a bit more uh, neutrality there. Um, so you're going to reintroduce it and keep it, keep it going? It's just going to keep on coming back because it's an issue that um, affects a lot of people. And I find that the, it, with many things, there's the empathy gap. And if you yourself have not gone through this, maybe you're a coin flip as to whether or not you support this. But my gosh, if you know somebody who you witnessed uh, a, a year of just debilitating pain and, and you know it's only going in one direction and you're just thinking, why are we being forced to, uh, to make this person suffer? Uh, I think that once you experience that, you become very committed to this cause. Did I tell you about my one experience with that? No. <laughs> My best friend from childhood in 2015, I went to say goodbye to him. He was in late stage hospice. Mm. He had brain cancer. And they yeah. said, you have only a few weeks left to live. He signed up for aid and dying in California where they had just passed it. Mm -hmm. he, it didn't take effect till January 1st. Mm -hmm. Right before January 1st, he got kicked out of hospice. He recovered for a reason they couldn't understand. Oh my God. And it went away, the tumor. They must have misdiagnosed it or something. Oh my God. And they still, eight years, nine years later, don't understand why. Mm -hmm. But he has a whole new life with like wow. marriage. And it didn't make him oppose aid and dying. Mm -hmm. It didn't change my mind. Yeah. But it really helped him appreciate mm -hmm. what a complicated issue is and why sure. smart people you would respect might not see it the same way. Sure. And yeah. it's like you could always find an anecdote really for either side. Sure. That's a real anecdote. Absolutely. So mm -hmm. It's pretty interesting stuff. But it, all the stuff here is to Josh Elliott, state rep. Mm -hmm. 88 district is always involved in interesting things. One thing you're interested in, I love one of your Don Quixote issues. I say, Josh, any chance of this now, which is to tax wealthy people more. We mm -hmm. tax our top tax rate of 6.9, is it? 6.99. We've been cutting taxes of wealthy people while in our surrounding states like New York and I believe Massachusetts, they are taxed more mm -hmm. with the idea that the we have a governor who's very, very wealthy and inherited wealth kind of that, well, otherwise everyone will move to Florida if mm -hmm. we don't, uh, tax people as little as we can mm -hmm. even though it's really a question of we're competing with massachusetts and new york sure. correct mm -hmm. but yeah yeah have a governor from your own party who's basically taking it off the table every year you and roland Mar of others have mm -hmm. tried to raise the tops 
marginal tax rate. Yeah. So are you? Is that even going to be coming up this year? You have to wait till there's no Le- Governor Lamont. I think the worst thing that I could do would be to stop talking about it. I'm mm. going to keep on talking about it, making people answer hard questions because the fact is, he's wrong. He's just wrong. And he's wrong through statistical analysis, through long-term uh, data, that we know that people don't move based on state tax rates. Yeah. And when our governor first got elected, he was saying that he didn't think that we should be punishing success, and that verbiage has changed to people will move. And I think the reason that that verbiage well, changed- The thing that really got me was punishing success. You have someone who has like inherited one right. of the great fortunes in America right. to be- well, I also think that's married if you have money. That's why. That's also why he has stopped using that as an argument. Yeah, I think he was shopping around for a better argument that fit his narrative. So fine. So he has. And that so where's the data that we could find that this proves the idea? Because there was originally that story in Hearst about I think five six years mm-hmm. ago where they said this few taxpayers who give such a high percentage of our revenues and mm-hmm. Dan Hart kind of agreed with this, right? He agrees with this <laughs> yeah. this day that you know they. If they move, or when a few of them move, you have so many fewer revenues. Okay, so, so should we be an oligo- like oligopoly? Should right. we just be listening to what all the the, the yeah. few rich people want? And the point was that that's not how a, we should be. But I de- thought there was other research. Sorry, I just got a little no, triggered no, no, right I'm there. With you. No, I, I'm with you. No, this is an issue that's <laughs> yeah. clear to me. But but I thought there was research um, that showed that in fact that wasn't the key decision. That's right. Uh, Cristobal Young is the researcher. I want to say he was at MIT or Stanford. Stanford. I'm sorry, who is it? Cristobal, C-R-I-S-T-O-B-A-L, mm-hmm. and then last name Young. Uh, he and another uh, have this. Have been doing a lot of research on this for a couple of decades. He's over at Cornell now, and we just we just know people aren't moving. And and the the problem with a lot of politics is that it is based off of anecdotal evidence. So if you live mm-hmm. in the Gold Coast, Fairfield, Greenwich, Westport, wherever, and someone says they're going to move, and then they do, boom, that is proof that people are going to move. The thing is, you don't know who's moved in, and all those houses sell. Someone's moving in, mm-hmm. and uh, you remember those threats, and you remember the times that it, it, it comes to reality, but what you aren't doing is comparing it to other states. What you aren't doing is comparing it to other high tax and low tax states and, and how it's changed over the course of time. You're not using uh, statistical tools. You are using this one story, this one person who left. And my God, one thing we should not be doing is just going back to your point is gearing our decision making just to keep one billionaire happy. Wow. That would be a travesty. This Suzanne, is still Susan democracy. Zenga says, always good to hear both of you in conversation and keep saying it. The data is not support narrative. Thank you for listening, Susan. The last argument we get, I remember Gary Winfield, who's on your side on this issue. Yes. told me once on air that he was, de- he was at a break at the Capitol. He was, he was talking to some guy who's some ultra zillionaire. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, I'm not worried what you pass because I just know my way around it. You're not going to get my money. <laughs> oh, I know. I know who that person is who he's talking to. Yeah. Uh, so how do you answer that? I understand that that's an argument. I mean, first of all, we need to be hiring way more folk over at the Department of Revenue Services to be going after tax cheats. We shouldn't mm-hmm. be going after people that, you know, might be getting an extra few hundred bucks from EITC. We want people or that are... tax credit. Yeah. We won't be going after people that are... Uh, not paying their their full share of taxes owed to Connecticut. Uh, that's that to me is the is the first thing that we should be doing is there are ways to declare residency in Florida, but if we have people who are digging into it, uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of revenue out there that this belongs to the state 
that the state can't collect because people are cheating the state. I want to see if they're having G&Ts at the Yacht Club in in uh, Greenwich with right. the governor instead of when they're pretending they're spending that extra day a year in uh-huh. Florida. Yeah. Then another one of your tilting at windmills um, <laughs> is ranked choice voting. Sure. How's that? What's standing? What's, where does that stand? So, once again, this has to do with very specific granular personalities that aren't on board with this issue. Uh, the governor has said to his credit that he's supportive of this. I think it was to help him get that that line. And, and there are uh, folk that are starting to put money behind this issue to really have their... Where does it stand now? Do we have like those, those kick it to a task force bills or what's the deal? So I had argued a task force on the floor of the house last year. And this was an arrangement with the minority party. Give us a half hour to give us some airtime. We're not going to have a vote on it. I know that all of the tabulators we're going to be getting in Connecticut over the next couple few years will have the ability to tabulate ranked choice voting uh, ballots. So that that aspect is is done. Uh, I think that folk from maybe not WFP Connecticut, but certainly WFP National Working Families Party, they are concerned with the way that ranked choice voting could potentially conflict with fusion voting. Fusion bo- voting being the way that you can vote for a candidate on either a Democratic or, let's say, Working Families Party line, and it is cumulative. And then ranked choice voting, of course, you vote for a candidate oh, once. that is true. So there's a potential conflict there. I think that there's ways that you could uh, create a system to use or utilize both. Uh, we'd have to, to work on that. So right now, the main conversation is implement ranked choice for presidential primaries and implement it for a municipal option, allowing towns or cities to use ranked choice if they so choose. Like we, are, we have with public financing in New Haven. Yes, so we are waiting for the attorney general to put out a, uh, a, a decision in terms of, or um, an, an advisory about whether or not the agency believes that uh, constitutionally we can implement ranked choice. Because there's a question of, uh, a constitutional question of, uh, can we right now even implement it even if we wanted to, or do we have to change the constitution? Uh, I think it's going to come out our way. I cannot tell you for certain. And if it does, then that really allows towns to change their charters. But there, there's still a lot of moving pieces. And, and even just getting this task force, even, even just getting these very basic ideas forward is really tough because we are still asking for our registrars and our town clerks to uphold this system of early voting and no excuse absentee voting of which people have a lot of questions and we're going to be coming up this year uh no excuse absentee permanent no excuse absentee will be on the ballot uh as a constitutional question so we already implemented early voting it's been going good not great and it will constantly get better there's a lot of educating to do there's a lot of communicating to do and then once we have permanent no excuse absentee uh the really foundational changes to our election system will have been so accomplished you're, you're going to continue to put in a bill for ranked choice but you're focusing now on following through on early voting and no excuse ballot well the the no, permanent no excuse absentee voting doesn't really need a lot of support from josh i'll i'll continue to push but it after and, what happened in bridgeport you don't think people can have second thoughts about that sure they'll have second thoughts but i I think the alternate argument is that when people are uh doing things they shouldn't be doing they are getting caught and do you think the people that in bridgeport want to be in statewide or national news as being people that have in some way contravened the the purpose of of early voting no absentee voting no uh, I think that it's an incredible black eye again for Bridgeport. It's uh, very, very frustrating that this happens over and over again. But they right, how did get, they get caught. caught if in 2019 they got caught, but they didn't get disciplined. So the same person did it four years later. 
Well, is that getting that's closed? an issue of our justice system, and and you have to just keep on. on... I think it's an issue with our state election enforcement commission, mm. not our justice system. Mm. They, by the time they get a complaint when someone does hanky panky in election, it's too sure. late to do anything there, and they never do anything that would stop them from doing it afterwards. Yeah, I don't know. What do we do about that? I don't know. I mean, I, I think maybe, You're not solve maybe, maybe sometimes you need federal federal uh, oversight too to come in and, and I mean, Harry I, I think... doesn't agree with anything you say. He says that's such a bad idea about ranked choice. Most votes should win, and they rarely get caught. Getting caught is the exception, says Harry. Yeah, I ask her. Okay. I mean, it's like the 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 problem is that you can have like a ten way race. And you could have somebody win with like 20%, 18% yeah. of the vote. Uh, the whole idea is that it's there's so many people that would prefer their second choice to their And they want to be able to vote for who they, someone they support yeah. the first round without having it cost them. Yeah, it's it's just different. It's just different. Well, Google's like us love it. Yeah, we feel like I love this it. It's like, you know, you get to have a lot more candidates you like without feeling like it's the lesser two right. people's. You know? Right, right. There's, there's so many more arguments in favor. And they yeah. said everyone in New York said this is going to be so complicated, then it wasn't complicated. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Josh Elliott, before we get on beyond state issues, I did want to ask you about one more, which is prison updates. So for years, you were focused on this really predatory pricing scheme for for phone calls. If you were in prison, you had no money. Mm -hmm. You had to pay ridiculous amounts of money per minute to a private company to make a phone call. Right. That's changed, correct? That it was this? $5 for a 15-minute call going to a company called Securus. And the state was taking a kickback. They were taking about two thirds of this, uh, and then having it go directly back, basically to the DOC uh, and or Department of, of Judicial Services as well. And a, a very essentially hyper targeted tax on black and brown mothers for the most part. And so this was a initially a twelve million dollar a year bill. It increased to about fifteen million. Because it's not just calls, it's also tablets and texts and emails. And um, ultimately, we did pass this bill. It has been implemented. We were the first state to do this. We went from being the most expensive state in the country to the first state to make these calls free. And now California has followed us, and Massachusetts is looking to follow us, and a number of other states in the Midwest are, are following our lead as well. And when did that go into effect? That went into effect last year. 2023. Correct. So what's next of prison reform? Is, is uh, solitary confinement your main one? Solitary confinement is an important one. Working with Barbara Fair on this, who does exceptional work, and of course Senator Gary Winfield. This is you know this is the the stuff that he's the best at, and um, I'm incredibly proud of the work that he does. So uh, this I, I think is going to be probably the next step in in reform. There, it's something that we've already been working on. So this is really a continuation of this. I do think that we are seeing a, a, an uptick in terms of violence within our prison system. And um, um, Representative Staffstrom, who is the co-chair with Senator Winfield on the Judiciary Committee, has pointed out that there are actually better staffing levels now than there was 10 years ago. It, it used to be four to three, uh, four to one, and now it's three to one. So now guards might not feel as... And so it's not really, well, it's not really a matter of needing more guards necessarily, although the DOC will, will say that it is, because the, because the, the uptick is, is um, has nothing to do with the number of guards to, to prison population. Um, I mean, I would say what I would always say, which is just that we need more services in the DOC. We need the DOC to be less of a black box. I think if you're uh, teaching higher ed, if you're a professor, you should be the, the person. You should be the entity that is overseeing higher ed. Same thing with anything medical services. I, I think that there's a lot of things that go on the DOC that we're not able to see as legislators. 
and, uh, and and they don't really want people to see because they want to keep doing things their way. But I think that if you are, specialize in a, a certain uh, component of what the DOC does right now, that that you should have oversight of that thing. Um, we're uh, again a far ways away from that. So for right now, solitary. All right, Josh Elliott, idiot state rep district. Three years from now, there's going to be a governor election. And I read that you're running for governor. I, well, it depends on what our current governor does. So you wouldn't run against Ned? No, no one, as far as I can tell in conversations that I've had, would run against Ned. There's no, that? He's, he's a good administrator. I disagree with, with him on a number of policy issues. Um, but he's done a good job with the stability for the state. Uh, I'm yeah, I, 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 and there's no real discontent with him. I think unions are frustrated mm -hmm. with him. Um, but you have to be really, really angry to be going after a sitting governor because a, it's really hard to win. And then the political backlash from that would be so severe mm -hmm. that the, the so risk versus reward doesn't run. Uh, I, it's a position I would be interested in. Were, were he were he to not run yes um and then uh in the meantime you're running for your fourth two-year term i would be running i'm running for my fifth two-year two term starting next year mm -hmm. oh sorry next this year oh my god yes yeah, starting sorry yeah, starting well, starting so, this so you year. are running for another term i will i love this job paul i'll do this job as long as my voters want to keep me mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and uh do you have primary last time I missed a primary by about 15 signatures. <laughs> so who's after you? Narrowly evaded. I, I think it's some folk that had been around for a little bit before I got elected that maybe feel like they have not been included in the political process. I think that there was a feeling that maybe there was an opening because maybe I had taken my eye off the ball because I had run for the statewide uh, for secretary of the state. And this was really just up until the convention, in which case I then immediately swiveled back to state rep. Gotcha. Um, but all the work that I was doing, I was still doing as I was running. Uh, and so it's like, you know, I was still going to the Capitol and voting on all my bills and, and making sure that that business was getting done and still listening to all my constituents and taking calls and answering emails. So it's the work was getting done. So I think that the argument against me was difficult to make because I think I'm doing a pretty good job in the role. You got into this role in 2016 working for uh, Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign. You brought it, think global, like act local philosophy here. Yeah. What are you doing this year with the presidential election? You're all in for Biden? Yeah. Yeah. I thought you might be Dean Phillips' guy. No. What's the, what's the I mean, there, what's the other choice? There's no other choice. It's either we keep democracy or we lose democracy. It's it's binary. Mm -hmm. That's it. It's not even about Biden. It's about just ensuring that our federal government doesn't get hollowed out again after we've just been trying to recover. Well, some people feel that uh, Biden is not in a shape to beat a Republican because he's old and sure. But and that, even though the economy's improved, people feel it hasn't. You know. Yeah, I. I get it. So you don't think I he's disagree. too old to be running an effective campaign? Uh, would I prefer he be younger? Sure. <laughs> but that again, it's that that's not something that I can control. He's already there. He's doing it. So wishing for something other is sort of futile. I support him. I hope he wins. I hope he stays in good health. <laughs> okay. I'll put it that way. I hope you stay in good health. You seem in pretty good health. I feel great. Is that because you shop at time of season? That is, <laughs> that is exclusively the reason. And because cannabis is legal. <laughs> that, that doesn't <laughs> hurt. <laughs> Josh Elliott, it is always such a pleasure to have you on Dateline New Haven. Thanks for coming to pre. When does the session start? 
We start early February. I want to say February 6th. And then you end in April, right? And then we end in May. May 1st. Early right? May. No, we, we, have, we have about a week in May. So 5th, 5th through 7th, somewhere around there. All right. Well, I hope it's a successful, fruitful, enjoyable session. Same. And I hope you continue to feel this energy. Same. In the, in the election. Thanks, Paul. Thanks to Harry Droz, the best station manager in the business, as well as uh, Devil's Advocate. We Discussions take certain routes. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. It's Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with you all day and all night at WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio. Mm-hmm.